Well, it is, it's good to be back home and to be with you today. Uh, my family and I were uh, away for a little bit. We took our summer vacation early. My two older ones were over in Norway for a missions convention. And so uh, my wife and I and the younger one, we decided to go out and, and meet them in one of my favorite cities in the world, the city of Edinburgh. Anybody ever been to Scotland? It, it's, it's amazing. Edinburgh uh, is a beautiful uh, uh, city. We were blessed to have the opportunity to, to travel together through the UK. We got to see some sites uh, in England, Scotland. We even went to Wales on this trip. We drove about 1,300 miles, and every single mile was done on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> right? I got to tell you, as tough as it was to transition over there, it's harder coming back. So you might see me turning into that left lane, just stay away, all right? But we had an, had an amazing, amazing trip. Uh, one of our highlights, I have this picture here, uh, of course, city of Edinburgh. That's the castle. If you ever go to Edinburgh, you see this castle that just kind of like looms over the whole city. It's just amazing. Uh, but I also have a picture here of uh, St. Giles Cathedral. And uh, there's a lot of history in this place of the Reformation. John Knox was the one who was pastoring that church in the time of the, the Reformation and at one point went in and removed all of uh, all the saints from there and took them out and, and, and was there and, and preached the gospel boldly in that place. John Knox was one who said this. He said, give me Scotland or I die. That was his heart for missions for his country. God, give me Scotland or I die. And I hope that's our heart, amen, for, for New York, for the country, amen. I don't believe America's too far gone. I, I believe God's stirring something among his people. God, give me America or I die, right? Let's give our lives for the gospel. Uh, man, John Knox will inspire you. I just encourage you, read some of what he wrote. Uh, but I'm so thankful. We're thankful to be back. You know vacation's good when the last day you're like, I'm ready to get home, right? I'm ready to be back uh, in the midst of things. I'm so thankful for Pastor Sal and Pastor Floyd for faithfully preaching the word of the Lord these last few weeks. Amen. Amen. They took you right through chapter 10, right? They took you through chapter 10 of the book of Acts, and uh, I want you to turn your, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're making our way through this slowly but surely. As you turn there uh, to Acts chapter 11, I, I want you to notice that, that Luke, as he's telling us about the growth of the early church, he very clearly describes the overcoming of some prejudices, some hindrances that were to the gospel, right? Remember in chapter 6, we saw the appointment of the Hellenistic Jews to address the problem of the daily distribution to the widows. There was this overcoming of a preference towards the Aramaic-speaking Jews. And then we read of the gospel going to the Samaritans. This was an overcoming of a strong bias against Samaritans by the Jews. This was something Jesus himself had even addressed. And then we read of Philip reaching an Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8, right? And this took place at a time when there were prejudices against the God-fearers, those who believed in the God of Israel but did not live according to the law of Moses. But the final hurdle for the Jewish church, because that's really what the early church was, it was made up of Jews, okay, who put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, but the final hurdle was to recognize the premise of John 3.16, that God so loved the world, that his heart is, is, is for the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but the nations of the world, that his heart is for the ethnos of the world. The Gentile world needed to hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in this account of the early church in, in chapter 11, okay, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see God's patience. 
We're going to see his grace in working with us to help us to know his will and to overcome our biases that sometimes keep us from serving him as we ought to. Acts chapter 11, are you there? Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa, And bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When I heard these things, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God bless the reading of his word today. Now, just a reminder, because we are eleven chapters into this great book, that in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, verse 8, Jesus said this. These are red-letter words, okay? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Remember, that is the, the theme of the book of Acts, that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And so we've seen it go to Jerusalem. We've seen it go to Samaria through Philip. We also seen the last few weeks in the previous chapter how Peter went to Joppa. And when he was there and, and on his way, a couple of miraculous things happened. And while he was in Joppa, he's, he's staying at the house of a guy named Simon the Tanner. And, and it was right around lunchtime, and he's hanging out on the roof, and they're cooking him breakfast. He could just smell it, and man, that smells great, he's thinking. He's hungry, and he goes into a trance. And he saw this vision from heaven of a sheep being let down with all sorts of unkosher critters and creeping things, all kinds of things on it. And the voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, being the compliant one that he always was, he said, no way, Lord, I'm not doing it, right? He pushed back against this idea of eating anything that was not kosher. And God said, what God has made clean, do not call in common. Well, that happened three times. A lot of threes with Peter, right? Three times. 
until finally he was instructed to go to Caesarea, that's right up the coast, and I, I need to point this out, you will see it if you come with us on our trip to Israel in November, I encourage you, uh, you can pick up information about that, but we're going to go to Caesarea, right? Um, and, and, and when we go there, here's what we see in Caesarea, that this, this beautiful city right along the coast. And it was in Caesarea that a man named Cornelius, who was a centurion, who had been prepped when an angel appeared to him, he told him to go to Peter, who's in Joppa, at Simon Tanner's house. Think about how these instructions are so specific, right? I want you to go to this guy's house, and this is who you're going to talk to. And so he brought him, and Peter shared the gospel. And so beginning in chapter 13, the focal point is going to shift. It's going to be on Paul. It's going to be on Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. And the majority of the book centers on the exploits of Paul. However, as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, it's now going to travel north. And here's why this is important. Most people, most Christians don't realize that the second most important city in the New Testament after Jerusalem is the city of Antioch. Okay, Antioch really becomes the place for all of these displaced believers uh, from Jerusalem, right? Uh, because of the persecution, they're forced northward. Many had gone to Damascus. Of course, Saul of Tarsus was headed there to find them. There, there's still a Christian community there in Damascus, but then they begin to go to Antioch as well. And a lot of these persecuted believers will relocate to Antioch of Syria. Now, you'll, you'll see that mentioned in our text from time to time. And from there, that's really where Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, that's where all the missionary exploits of Paul will be sent from. It won't be from Jerusalem, it's going to be from Antioch. And so Antioch will become the second most important city, especially in the book of Acts. Today it's, it's modern day Turkey, but in antiquity it was Syria. And that would be really the very cradle of the Christian movement. And what's ironic is this, today in the cradle of where Christianity began, especially in Syria, most Christians have been forced out or put to death. And I'm not talking about hundreds of years ago. I'm talking about in our lifetime this has taken place. So back to verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, if we were just to stop right there in verse 1, what do you think the response of the apostles would be? The Gentiles received the word of God. You'd think they'd be like, man, that's awesome, right? Like they heard it too, that, that's amazing. If that's the way you think, then praise God because that's the way you should think. But unfortunately, many in the early church did not think that way. But this way of thinking was never God's original plan. When the Jews of this time, even Christian Jews, looked at Gentiles, they saw them as a nuisance. They regarded them as defiled and as worthless. You see, to ancient Jews 2,000 years ago, there were two types of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were the Jews, there was God's chosen people, and then there's the Gentiles, everyone else. But God's original plan was that Israel would be a light to the nations of the world. But instead, they had become very closed off over time. And their rabbis taught things that were never a part of the heart of God or the plan of God or the will of God or the word of God. For example, if you were a Jewish person and you were walking down the street in the marking place, you would you'd hold your robes close. You'd hold your dress close to you so you wouldn't brush up against a Gentile. Because if you touched a Gentile, if your clothing rubbed against a Gentile, you were considered not by the Bible, not by, by the word of God, but by rabbinic tradition to be defiled. And either your clothes had to be burned or you had to go through a ritual washing 
just to get clean again. You were defiled. And so the the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, were regarded as other than chosen, other than we are. We're marked by God, but they're marked actually for destruction. Did you know that eventually the rabbis used to say that the reason that God created Gentiles was to keep the fires of hell burning, to keep the fires hot. That's the way they were made. You got to put somebody in there. And it's not going to be us. It's certainly not going to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. And so if you're a Gentile person, hell was created for you. That was part of the ideology. Well, some of that ideology, think about it, it filtered right down into the early church. Because after all, we are products of tradition, are we not? I would venture to say in your life, if you grew up in a religious home, you have some traditions from your past, right? And they can be good, but they can also be bad. Some of our traditions can be baggage, and you have to reorientate yourself around Scripture and say, is this really what the Word of God says? Amen? The early church had some adjustments to make. They had some legalists within it. It says, when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, these are believers, but they're legalistic Jews, they contended with him, saying, you went into the uncircumcised men's home and you ate with them. Notice their issue is not that the Gentiles had heard the gospel it was that Peter was breaking the law, right, the, the kosher laws. So instead of saying, hey, Peter, man, that's awesome. You, you shared with Gentiles and they opened their, like, tell me, did they receive Christ? What happened, right? Instead of that, they're all worried about the fact that you hung out with them and, and you got defiled, Peter. I can't believe you actually ate with them. There were in Jerusalem those of the circumcision party, the legalistic in their background, they were Products of their tradition, not the heart of God, not the will of God, not the word of God. Products of their tradition who just saw what Peter did as totally off limits. Now, you've got to keep something in mind, though, before we come down so hard on these uh, Jewish believers, right? Yes, the way they were thinking was wrong, and they'll adjust. You're going to see that happen. But they didn't have the benefit that you and I have today, right? They, they didn't have the, the whole picture of God's plan for Jews and Gentiles. They didn't have the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews and Galatians, right, and Ephesians. We do, right? We, we've been trained. We get it now. But they didn't have that. It was just kind of all brand new stuff to them. And so many of the people of the circumcision were, were priests. They were Levitical priests of the temple because it says many of the priests had even come to Christ, but they're still priests, and they still have this baggage, and they still have this background, and all of these years of training about what was defiling and what was not. Understand, at this point, the church already has factions. Understand, where you have people, you will always have differing opinions, right? Anytime you get two people together, two or more, you're going to have differing opinions, right? And this is why, as a church, we need our minds to be renewed by the Word of God. In order to have unity, we need to have our minds renewed by the Word of God and say, God, the way I'm thinking and the way I'm living, does it line up with your Word, right? And so they contend with Peter, and they criticize him. The word in verse 2 in the ESV, it's criticized. It's a, a very interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word diakrino, diakrino, right? It means to, to separate or to discern or to judge And that really is the heart of the meaning here. They made a difference when they looked at people. If you were Jewish, you were very different than if you were non-Jewish. The whole ethnicity thing made such a difference. There is clean and there's unclean. And the, the criticism of Peter was that he ate with Gentiles. It probably means that he ate food that wasn't kosher. Wasn't prepared in a kosher kitchen. He might have had a cheeseburger. I don't know. Maybe it was a bacon cheeseburger, right? Going off the deep end, right? 
There's, there's a debate within messianic congregations to this day about what, whether what took place in Acts chapter 10 is simply about the gospel being for all or if it was a doing away with the Jewish food laws. I think it's both because, again, the accusation against Peter is that he ate with Gentiles. In his letter to the Galatians, Peter is going to be confronted by Paul. Paul is going to confront Peter for eating with Gentiles until kosher brothers are present. Then he eats only with them, right? And he says, what are you doing here? He's kind of two-faced, right? But, but Peter had been learning from this vision that he just had. He's about to tell them the vision, and, and what he's learned is that a voice came from heaven and said, Peter, whatever I've cleansed, don't call common or unclean. And then he meets Cornelius as if to say, whoever I've cleansed, you're not to call common or unclean. In other words, if I cleanse food and I say, eat it, eat it. If I cleanse a Gentile, you can't call that Gentile common or unclean any longer. But in Jerusalem, they haven't had this vision. They didn't have the experience that Peter had. Peter himself, even as he had this vision, is hesitant to change. But now he's back in Jerusalem, and they contend with him. They make a a difference with him. And so it says there in verse 4, Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. He's going to tell them the story one more time of what happened. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa, and I was praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven, by its four corners, and it came down to me. Peter received this mental image in prayer accompanied by an audible voice. A a great sheet or a sail comes down from heaven, which is symbolic of it coming from God, right? This is the second full retelling of the vision. But please understand, when things are repeated in Scripture, they are very important. The fact that this set of visions is repeated three times means it's very important. You need to see this. We understand Scripture with the help of Scripture, right? And the fact that the Holy Spirit had Luke use extra paper and extra time to write the same revelation three times, right? If you're an editor, you might say, we already heard that, right? But there's a reason it's in there three times. It is very important, right? It was important to the early church, and I think it's important to us now. It's important that we understand that the gospel is for all nations of the world. The gospel is not just for us here in America. We've received the blessing of God and we're good. It's for all the nations of the world. God's heart is for the nations of the world. That one day every tongue and tribe and nation would be gathered around the throne. And I don't know what the heavenly language is going to be. Some of you say it's Spanish. I don't know what it's going to be. But I know there's going to be a unity there around the throne of God because we've been changed. And, And so understand this. For now, it is our privilege It is our joy to be in the role of Peter where we get to share the good news with those who God has already begun to work in their hearts. Peter continues sharing his vision. Look at it, verse 6. He says, looking at it closely, I observed. Here's what I saw. I saw beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. He said, man, there were snakes on there, all kinds of things. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. It must have been so shocking. Think about this. For for Peter to hear God telling him to do what he believed was against the law given by Moses, these kosher food laws. But under the new covenant, which was established by the blood of Jesus, the worship rituals and the societal laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to write later in Ephesians that the barriers between Jew and Gentile were done away with in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, powerful verses. It says, for he himself is our peace. Who's that speaking of? Jesus, come on, nine times out of ten, that's the right answer, right? 
He himself, Jesus is our peace. He's made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Now some would say, well, if Jesus did away with those kosher food laws, what about the Ten Commandments? I mean, if we're gonna throw that out, why don't we throw those out too? They don't apply then, right? But you need to see there's a distinction here. I believe there's a very clear distinction here between societal laws and the moral laws of God. Moral laws still apply to us today because they represent the nature and the character of God. God will never ask us to commit adultery or murder of a human being. Why? Because it is against his nature, which does not change, okay? And so Peter is still trying to understand all that's taken place and how this works itself out in the new covenant that was established by Jesus, right? Paul would go on, he's going to go on to teach a lot about this in his letters. If you want to understand, you've got to dig into the epistles of Paul. But going on there in verse 8, it says, but I said by no means. I said by no means. That's not going to happen. He says, for, for nothing common or unclean has ever touched my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. Food and people, right? Both are acceptable to God through the work of Jesus on the cross. His death changed everything, again, except for the nature of God, which is unchangeable. And and so the message here is that God can prepare any person to receive the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The reality is that no one is too far gone, that God can work on the heart of anyone to receive Jesus Christ. We already saw it in the life of Saul, right? God broke him down and met him and changed his life. Jesus can also sanctify the food when we ask and we pray. I hope that's not just routine, but we say, God, sanctify this food, right? But Peter didn't get it yet because he still thought, man, we're under the Old Testament health laws for the nation of Israel, but everything changed when Peter entered the kingdom of God. He he was born a Jew by culture and by birth, but he became a citizen of heaven. And heavenly citizens have a new law that's written on their hearts and in their minds. It involves knowing the heart of God. It involves hearing the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, as we listen to the Holy Spirit, sometimes that can be even more restrictive. Like if you allow the Holy Spirit to speak, sometimes they'll put a check on what to eat and what not to eat, right? Sometimes they'll say, you probably shouldn't have that third donut. It's not a good idea to do that, right? Now, the spirit behind the law of Moses was for the health of the Jewish people so they could be a witness to the world that the spirit of God had changed their lives. What kind of witness are we, though, I wonder, in in the way that we eat and the way that we keep our bodies, right? These temples, this is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Understand, we have freedom today to eat whatever we want, right? But we also sometimes have checks from the Holy Spirit that guide us to what is good and what is right and what leads towards life, amen? You might say, well, pastor, does God really care what I eat? I think if he didn't, then why did he give the Jews the kosher laws ever? Why did he ever do that, right? The truth is you are unique, and some of you can eat things that would not be good for others. Some of you, man, nothing affects you. Others of you, you know, I can't eat that, right? I've heard stories of, of New Agers actually holding crystals over their food to decide if this food is good or bad or if I should eat it. Can I just say, I think we have a much better source than that in the Holy Spirit, Amen. And so if we're submitted to the Holy Spirit, he will lead us in the way that we eat and in our health. 
verse 10, this happens three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter knew the importance of a message that was spoken three times, right? He, he also knew that, that God arranges the timing of things. Verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, there were three men that arrived at the house in which we were. So three times three men, right? You know what? I, I for one, don't believe in coincidences. I don't. I, I don't think there are any coincidences in life. I think there are only coinciding events for the glory of God, right? And so Peter kind of conveniently leaves out the fact that he asked some questions. Who are you guys? Why'd you come, right? He's doubting. He, he just says, the Lord told me not to doubt. And so Peter, led by the Spirit, he goes and he takes six Messianic Jewish brothers with him as witnesses. He says, I'm going to take some guys with me. You know, I, I think Peter had an idea of about what was about to happen, and he knew, man, no one's going to believe me unless I bring some witnesses, right? So I'm going to bring six guys. Now there's seven of us to confirm what takes place. Verse 13, and he told us that he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you, by, declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Now, just a little clarification. When we talk about Peter, Okay, Simon is actually his Hebrew name. Okay, that's why you hear him referred to as Simon Peter. Simon or Shimon, it means to listen or to hear. If you know Peter's story, that's kind of funny, right? Because he was never really good at listening or hearing, right? Peter was much better at talking. He was much better at jumping to conclusions. He really didn't live up to his Hebrew birth name. And so Jesus renamed him. He said, I'm going to call you Petros. It's the Greek word for a small little stone. He took his birth name and he gave him a nickname. Jesus said, I'm going to call you Rocky, okay? Okay, Simon, I'm going to say we're going to call you, right? And, and so Shimon, whose name was Petros, whose name was Peter, will tell you the words which you, by which you and your household will be saved. I love it, how specific God is. This is the guy. Now he's just telling them the story. And, and, and Peter's standing before this council and he's like, man, there was a guy who wants to be saved, like he saw an angel and then he sent for me. And so, yeah, you heard I, I went into an unclean, uncircumcised Gentile's house and I ate with him. But let me fill you in on the whole story. Because the angel spoke to this guy and a voice from heaven spoke to me. And then he says this in verse 15. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. At the beginning, what is that? Well, it's the day of Pentecost. It was the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit descending, you know, the speaking in tongues, the utterances in tongues, the, the praising of God. And then he says this, and then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice as Peter is telling this story to the critics in Jerusalem, he gives them three lines of evidence. I encourage you to write these down, three things. I love it because Peter doesn't say, just trust me on this, guys. I know what I'm talking about. Just, just trust me. He says, here's, here's what happened. Number one, he says, I got a vision from God. You see that in verses 5 through 11. There was a vision from God. I got a vision from God. I, I didn't just go into some random Gentile's house. I got a vision from God, and a, and a voice spoke to me. Listen, if we are going to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us, it is important that we get a vision from God. The word of God says without a vision, people perish. Without a vision, people cast off restraint. We need to hear clearly from God as to what he would have us to do. I hope you live your life with a vision from God. Secondly, the second evidence is this. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit was obviously doing something. The Holy Spirit came upon these Gentiles, and, and they, were, they were changed, man. They were changed dramatically. Peter says, I heard it. I, I saw it. And so his own personal experience and a vision from God, there's the witness of the Spirit. And then finally, in verse 16, there is the witness of the Word. Underline that verse, verse 16. It says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John, baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord. At least underline those words. I remembered the word of the Lord. It's so important in the life of a believer that we have the witness of the word of God. Peter, Peter's not just saying, well, you know, I had a dream, guys. I had a, I had a vision. I had this experience with, with the Holy Spirit, so just, just trust me on this. He's saying, no, no, as all these things happened in my life, I remembered the word of God, and the word of God aligned with what I saw and what I experienced. This is what Jesus said. John baptized with water. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Listen, in our own lives, we can't just go by the experiences. Experiences are grave. We can't just go by dreams and visions. We need to be grounded in the word of God so that when those things do come into our lives, we say, you know what, it lines up with the word. I remember I was just reading that the other day, right? And God will take us back to his word. We need to be grounded in the word. And so Jesus predicted it. The Holy Spirit gave witness to it. And Peter says, I experienced it. Those are three lines of evidence that he brings to them. And then verse 17 is really his conclusion. He says, if then. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? See what Peter's saying here? He's saying, man, I know how you guys feel. Like, I'm Jewish too. I, I was reluctant. I, I was hesitant to eat. I, I, I wanted to withstand God. I wasn't into this. I kept saying, this is not cool. I even told Cornelius, I shouldn't be in your house right now. This is not good, Right? But at the same time, Peter says, if the Lord did this, then who am I to fight against what God is doing? Who am I to, to withstand God? If, if God does something, should we object? The answer is obviously not. This was probably one of the first church council meetings. And, and it brings up the question, man, how would the church decide differences? How would the, the church decide differences. How should the church decide differences? Well, here's how they did it. They brought the elders, they brought the apostles together, they presented the case, and then they sought the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, now look at this, because the matter seems to be settled there in verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Have you ever seen an argument where one side just goes silent, right? Like they got no rebuttal, there's, there's, no, there's no comeback, there's no objection, this is a perfect case, right? And so yes, the early church was legalistic. You could say they were narrow-minded. Yes, there were, they were products of past tradition, but they were reasonable men. And as they heard the evidence given by Peter, they say, well, okay, I didn't think it was possible. And you gotta underline verse 18. But God has granted, has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. I wonder if you realize what a shocking admission this is in Jewish history. 
for, for a Jewish priest, for the hierarchy of the temple, for a legalistic, Torah-minded Jewish person to say, wow, my admission is, like, right now I'm admitting that God has given eternal life to non-Jewish, non-chosen people based simply on their faith in Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly shocking admission. However, something I mentioned earlier, this was God's plan all along. God didn't create the nation of Israel so they could just be closed off, right, and, and just hoard their blessings and, and just secure themselves in their own blessings that they could just sit there under the spout where the glory comes out, right, and just receive it, right? That wasn't what it was about. God said, I've ordained you to be a light to the Gentiles and a light to the nations, and I want to tell you it's the same for us today. God did not save us. He did not redeem us so that he could just bless us and we could hoard those blessings, God has blessed you to be a blessing. God has blessed you to be a blessing, a blessing to the nations. As the worship team comes, as we prepare to close, I want to take you all the way back, all the way back to the story of Abram. Abram was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God said, I want you to leave your family. I want you to to leave your house. I want you to leave your people and your country, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, for I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you, Genesis 12 says this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, I'm bringing you out of your country. I'm going to plant you in another land, and I'm going to make you great. But the purpose for which I am making you great, the purpose for which I'm choosing you, Abram, and I'm going to choose millions that would come be your descendants, is so that in you, all the families of the earth, not just your family, not just Jewish families, not just Israeli families, right, but all the families, all the nations of the earth. Ultimately, that's a promise that speaks of Jesus. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of the price that he paid for us, any person in any family, in any country, with any language, with any background, for the last 2,000 years since Jesus, our Messiah, came, anyone who believes in Jesus will receive the blessing of God. They'll receive the salvation of God. They'll receive forgiveness of sins and, and eternal life. It's, it's a package deal. So in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Would you stand with me today? I want you to understand, church, this was always God's intention. And as we're here in Acts chapter 11, all of a sudden, the church is waking up to the reality, man. This was God's plan all along. And the consensus of that first church council was that the Gentiles were given equal status with Messianic Jewish believers. They weren't second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, right? I'm thankful for that today. If you're not Jewish, you should be thankful as well, right? Not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We come together in the kingdom of God. And what's the proof of that? Well, the Holy Spirit was the proof. I thank God for that today. I'm thankful today that God so loved the world, <laughs> that he loves you today, that he loves your neighbor, that he loves that Muslim coworker, that Jewish friend, every nation and tongue and tribe, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile as well. God has granted, listen to this, repentance that leads to life. I wonder, how did they really know that God granted repentance to the Gentiles? Well, I think the repentance must have been evident. I would say this in your own life. If you've repented, there is a fruit that comes from repentance. 
it looks like something. Something begins to, to change in your own life. And if you're here today, and maybe, maybe you're a little bit like Cornelius where you're a good person. You do, do the right things and you, you honor God. But you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today is a day to repent. And that just simply means I'm going to turn from doing things my own way. I'm going to turn from trusting in my own goodness to save me. And I'm going to trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross with every head bowed around this room today. I just have to ask the question. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit's stirring something in your heart right now. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Repentance is simple. It means I'm going to stop doing it this way. I'm going to do a 360. I'm going to be a 180. I'm going to go the other way, right? I'm going to walk the other way. You're here today and you would say, Pastor, would you pray with me? I want to make that decision today. I want to surrender my life to Jesus just by an upraised hand. Anyone in the room that would say that today. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Give you a moment. I want you to understand here in this passage what it says. Just a moment. Anyone want to just say that? Okay, well, I trust today that you've received that, that repentance that, that leads to life. But I also say this today, that repentance, repentance is for the church as well. Repentance is for the church as well. We see here in the scripture, it says that God grants repentance to life. Have you thought about that before? That God actually has to give someone the ability to repent. He grants repentance. It's, it's really powerful if you think about it. At the same time, it can seem counterintuitive. But some of you here today, I got to say, you just need to repent. However, you, you can't do the repenting you need to do unless God helps you to do it. Now, you could hear that and say, well, if God wants me to repent, he make me repent, right? But here's the deal. God's not going to make you repent. In some way, that's really hard to describe repentance is God's work in you. At the same time, your perception is, man, this is something I choose to do. I, I choose to repent. And so which is it? I would say it's both. I think you can say both at the same time. That you can't repent without God working in you. And at the same time, I can say this today that you need to repent. Just repent. Just turn from your sin. Turn your back on the life you lived before Jesus. It means you step out and now you do what God wants you to do. Again, repentance is for the church. How do I know that? In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. And in five of those seven letters, God tells the church to repent. This makes me think if I do the math, five out of seven Christians need to repent. Just look around you, figure it out, right? Look at yourself, right? We all have something that we need to repent of. We all have those places where we've been walking in the wrong direction. And God lovingly by his Holy Spirit would put his finger on a sin in your life today and just say enough is enough. There's repentance available. But I want you to understand it's repentance that leads to life. You see the lie of the enemy is if you repent and you turn from that sin you're going to miss out on something. But the truth is repentance leads to life. There is a repentance that is granted to you by God. Yes you choose in the moment to repent but you can never make that choice unless God granted it to you and when you realize that and you recognize that God grants us repentance there ought to be an urgency to repent. Maybe you're here this morning and, and if you're honest there's this feeling there's a sense I really need to repent. There's an area God's putting his finger on that area in your life and you say 
you know what, I know I need to repent, but let me just like put that off. I can do that tomorrow, right? I, I can do that later. We all hear that voice, right? I, it's, it's something we can do later. But hear me, church, I think it's so important when we realize that repentance is a gift from God, it means that we can't always do it later. Because you can't repent any time you want, only when God gives you the gift of repentance. You can repent when he grants you the gift of repentance. And if that gift is stirred up in you right now, and the Holy Spirit's highlighting an area in your life, and he's just saying, turn away from that, then now is the time to do it. Now is the time to turn. Now is the time to surrender. Don't presume on the ability to repent tomorrow, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Take the opportunity right here and right now, because here's the beautiful thing, again, about this repentance that God grants. It's a repentance that leads to life. And so as we close with the song, here's the opportunity. These altars are open. Maybe you need to come and you need to do business with God. Maybe you need to finally set that thing down and say, God, I'm not going to pick it up anymore. I'm done with that. Talk with many Christians who've struggled with sin in their lives, even things that they know are bad, they're harmful to them, but it's not until the Holy Spirit convicts them of that thing that all of a sudden there's the power to change, amen? And so as we close today, these altars are open and the enemy would love to say to you, well, if you go up there, people are going to wonder why you're up there. Listen, I wonder why we're not all up here sometimes, right? right. We all have things in our lives that we need to turn from and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work on and change. And so here's the invitation today. These altars are open. We'd love to just lay a hand on you and pray for you that God would give you the strength you need to turn to him in greater ways and that you would receive the blessing of the Lord, which is life. So as we close, these altars are open. Feel free to just come and find a place here and just do business with God. Let him do business with you. Amen.